Bookworm Games, episode 19, The Place of Moo. Welcome, one and all. Two shorter episodes for you this week, on two short but discreet chapters, here at around the high noon of Earthbound's day, on Delam, and then on the museums and sanctuary spots, Magnet Hill, and Pink Cloud. First, Delam. Eating the special magic cake, tints the screen rose and scrambles it sideways. The narration appears, Ness had a very clear and very strange dream. I love that comma. It's grammatically superfluous, but so wonderfully intimates the cadence of the line. Like in the opening of the game, the narration places us, this time, in Dalam, a country in the east. So that in some sense, we're invited to view the whole game as our dream. It's like the introduction of Jeff in Winters, too. So we can expect to be meeting the fourth friend here. And if this is Ness's dream, and this is what he dreams about, something pretty interesting is happening. Rather than the effect of Paula's telepathy, which is like a telephone calling to him and then Jeff, this time Ness perceives events at a distance, even participates in them, as in a dream or in a video game on a television screen, for that matter. The foreign language of Dalam is silently translated, transliterated, just as the whole game is for us, playing it in translation. And so the layers go something like, we are playing a translation of a Japanese video game about a Westerner dreaming about an Easterner. It's a dream in the form of a video game. The oneric layer aside, I'm fascinated by the cultural perspective. And again, as we saw in Summers, how one of the most magical things about Ness and his friends is their apparent deftness in moving between cultures and languages. How different from the narrator's angst-ridden Orientalism in Araby. What innumerable follies laid waste my waking and sleeping thoughts after that evening. I wished to annihilate the tedious intervening days I chafed against the work of school. At night in my bedroom and by day in the classroom, her image came between me and the page I strove to read. The syllables of the word Araby were called to me through the silence in which my soul luxuriated and cast an eastern enchantment over me. I asked for leave to go to the bazaar on Saturday night. Or, in the next story in Joyce's Dubliners, the disastrous paralysis of Eveline on the point of her departing for Buenos Aires. All the seas of the world tumbled about her heart. For anyone interested in the whole topic of modernism and poetry from Foreside and the role of place and home and travel, I'd highly recommend reading those Dubliners stories by James Joyce, all freely available online. All this could be just a way of transitioning to Pooh's adventure. But if this is Ness's dream, the idyllic mountaintop princedom, a reflection of his own suburban home on the hill, well, then later we'll see his nightmare. I've mentioned it a few times in previous episodes. And I'll pause here just a moment to correct something I said about Ness's IQ. It's a clarification on numbers because Ness's IQ, even by the end of the game, is likely to be much lower than 100, which is what I had said. In my game, he's hovering just below 40 now, about halfway through or more. 
and even with the post Magicant boost, I doubt he'll reach the triple digits. But it still makes sense, I think, to take his IQ to be the benchmark average. And that's what a 100 IQ score is supposed to mean. Uh, apparently there's something, though, called the Flynn effect out there, whereby that 100 IQ score represents greater and greater generalized intelligence over time. People are actually getting smarter in the abstract sense measured by the battery of tests. Go figure. As suggested by the dream frame, Pooh is a kind of reflection of Ness. His stats are akin in their balance, but they are much lower across the board upon initially meeting him. He lacks an attack psi corresponding to your favorite thing. At least for now, there is an absence there, a placeholder, which could be read as meaning that his favorite thing is nothing. And that might work in the light of his training regimen, about which more in a moment. Pooh is enthroned, whereas Ness awakens in bed. But they are about equally well taken care of. This goes along with what Carnegie argues in his Gospel of Wealth. Today the world obtains commodities of excellent quality at prices which even the generation preceding this would have deemed incredible. In the commercial world, similar causes have produced similar results, and the race is benefited thereby. The poor enjoy what the rich could not before afford. What were the luxuries have become the necessaries of life. The laborer has now more comforts than the landlord had a few generations ago. The farmer has more luxuries than the landlord had, and is more richly clad and better housed. The landlord has books and pictures rarer, and appointments more artistic than the king could then obtain. Pooh is called to action by his master, a kind of father figure, who knows it is time to complete his training. But Pooh can also call Ness's dad on the phone. It's a phone held on the head of a servant, or else it consists of a person there with some sort of psychic abilities and a haircut in the shape of a phone. At any rate, Ness's dad will comment on your voice changing and then save the game for you. Pooh's other psi abilities are a mix of Ness's and Paula's, with offensive freeze and thunder, but also life up, healing and teleportation. And like Jeff, he has some idiosyncratic skills with items, uh, such as the mystical power to recover psychic points, PP, from water and the mystical incapacity to benefit from equipping any of the western garb or weapons favored by his teammates. In battle, he possesses an extra command, about as useful as Jeff's spying. Whereas spy shows you the enemy uh, weaknesses and gives you a heads up if they're carrying a present, Pooh is able to mirror the enemy, changing into it and giving it a taste of its own medicine. There's echoes here of the mirror of princes genre which are writings that were dedicated to cultivating the ruler. They culminated and ultimately were superseded by the practicality of the prince by Machiavelli on one hand, and in the cosmopolitanism of the Book of the Courtier by Castiglioni on the other. As useless as it is in most battles, there's something elegant about Prince Pooh's power to transform into his foe, representing an ideal mastery of forms and transferal of energies humbling of his high station, and the capaciousness of his understanding to literally take on the shape of his adversary, a godlike, protean playfulness and creativity.
carrying a tiny ruby and a brain stone, a brain food lunch, a jar of deli sauce, and a bottle of water. These are the treasures of Dalam, out of the opulent palace, with its door flanked by golden elephants rampant. And down the earthen path among the village huts of mud and thatch, Pooh resembles not so much Ness as Siddhartha, the historical Buddha, or the hero in the novella of Hermann Hesse. I'll just read a couple of pages from the beginning of that. Siddhartha, part one. The Brahmin's son. In the shade of the house, in the sunshine on the river bank by the boats, in the shade of the sala wood and the fig tree, Siddhartha, the handsome Brahmin's son, grew up with his friend Govinda. The sun browned his slender shoulders on the riverbank, while bathing at the holy ablutions, at the holy sacrifices. Shadows passed across his eyes in the mango grove during play, while his mother sang, during his father's teachings, when with the learned men. Siddhartha had already long taken part in the learned men's conversations, had engaged in debate with Govinda, and had practiced the art of contemplation and meditation with him. Already he knew how to pronounce Om silently, this word of words, to say it inwardly with the intake of breath, when breathing out with all his soul, his brow radiating the glow of pure spirit. Already he knew how to recognize Atman within the depth of his being, indestructible, at one with the universe. There was happiness in his father's heart because of his son, who was intelligent and thirsty for knowledge. He saw him growing up to be a great learned man, a priest, a prince among Brahmins. There was pride in his mother's breast when she saw him walking, sitting down and rising, Siddhartha, strong, handsome, supple-limbed, greeting her with a complete grace. Love stirred in the hearts of the young Brahmin's daughters when Siddhartha walked through the streets of the town with his lofty brow, his king-like eyes, and his slim figure. Govinda, his friend, the Brahmin's son, loved him more than anybody else. He loved Siddhartha's eyes and clear voice. He loved the way he walked, his complete grace of movement. He loved everything that Siddhartha did and said, and above all, he loved his intellect, his fine, ardent thoughts, his strong will, his high vocation. Govinda knew that he would not become an ordinary Brahmin, a lazy sacrificial official, an avaricious dealer in magic sayings, a conceited worthless orator, a wicked sly priest, or just a good stupid sheep amongst a large herd. No, and he, Govinda, did not want to become any of these, not a Brahmin like ten thousand others of their kind. He wanted to follow Siddhartha, the beloved, the magnificent. And if he ever became a god, if he ever entered the all-radiant, then Govinda wanted to follow him as his friend, his companion, his servant, his lance-bearer, his shadow. That was how everybody loved Siddhartha. He delighted and made everybody happy. But Siddhartha himself was not happy. Some of Pooh's subjects seem to recognize him, asking if he has time to play patty cake with them, or if he has to train again. The girls all seem smitten, whether they know him by sight or only by hearsay. The men are in awe of his stern regimen, or busy meditating themselves. What is immortality? The first person you meet outside the palace asks. Is it everlasting life? Mm. Mm. The question bears considering. The theme of immortality will lead us into the pyramid hieroglyphs in the Summers Museum next episode, but also into the Mu training that will occupy the remainder of this episode. Mu 
translated as nothingness in some places, and left as the word mu in others, is both a proper noun, the name of a place, and a convenient locus of cow puns. Moo training, M-O-O, says one of the girls. And I want him to come do his best barnyard impression. The meditating ascetic on the side of the path preets and poots, but yet another wise man, already adept at moo, dressed in loose gray robes, compliments your eyes and promises to show you a higher level of intelligence once he completes his own further training, as you are about to complete moo training. The master, who greets and then whirls away, is a little confusing, but it does seem that this training is not something to be learned from another living person, however enlightened. Is it then something to be sought within oneself? Climbing the series of ropes, Pooh then sits cross-legged at the top of the narrow peak, sky all around but for one patch of Dalam town visible, where a girl comes to tell you the master needs you. If you stir, the training breaks off. You'll be chastised and have to start all over. If you sit still, the huge head outline of a ghost descends to envelop you. The moaning and groaning of Tibetan monks fills the screen. The screen shifts to a combat, but your only options are to answer yes or no to the ghost, which turns out to be the spirit of Pooh's ancestors. Each time, it describes a gruesome attack, depriving Pooh's faculties or his limbs, describes the consequences. You won't be able to fight back, to move, to see, to hear. It asks, do you accept this? So the spirit asks each time. And each time, in order to pass through, you must select yes. Finally, the spirit promises to take your mind. But that it seems, will wait. And so, nothingness, mu, is the place where the spirits of the living and dead overlap and communicate. Also, the trial, the ordeal, which leads up to and stops just short of ultimate nothingness. The struggle not so much of the living against the dead as against our own instinct for life, our own conception of life. But perhaps immortality is something other than everlasting life something not extended in quantity, more and more life, but different in quality, better and better life. Or so it appears to the adept. And with this possibility experienced, though he seemed to be KO'd in the fight, Pooh walks away victorious and is permitted this time to proceed. The sitting in emptiness, confronting the past and the unknown beyond the world of the senses, then... It's not lost time, but a final stage in the training for a further test, the adventure beyond Dalam. So, searching for sources for this Mu in the Legends of Localization book and online, I came across the following. There's a note in Legends of Localization about a story called Toshishun, the tale of the prodigal young man and the hermit says, Pooh's Mu training was inspired by a Chinese tale about an unhappy man named Toshishun, who travels with a hermit to a sacred mountain. Toshishun is told to remain silent as a test. He sits quietly as he endures gruesome trials and has his body ripped apart. 
he only breaks his silence when apparitions of his parents are brutally beaten. So, that's interesting. Uh, sounds like quite the fairy tale. Um, and it also, of course, has some overlaps with initiation and mythological stories from all around the world. Then, uh, from my online search, although I couldn't find much about that story Toshi Shun, I did run across this tidbit in a long article on a Chrono Trigger fan, fan site under Chrono Compendium uh, article called The Secret of Nu, with, with an N. Apparently somebody connected it with Mu. And here he goes. There is a very famous Zen koan that you guys might be interested in. If you're not familiar to what a koan is, it's a small story, usually a dialogue between a Zen master and his disciples, that reveals some truth about the nature of Zen, often in very confusing ways. In fact, many of these are amusing and comical. Anyway, one of the most well-known Zen koans goes like this. A disciple asked the Zen master, Chao Chu, Does a dog have the Buddha nature? The master replied, Mu. At this, the disciple instantly achieved enlightenment. Now, the meaning of the word Mu is hard to explain. It's literally not. And it could be seen to be nothingness. But of course in Zen, there is not simply nothingness, but also simultaneously everythingness. So it's hard to put down its exact meaning. And I think it varied for everyone. Here's one interesting explanation. Chao Chu's dog, the case. A monk asked Chao Chu, has the dog Buddha nature or not? Chao Chu said, Mu. Wu Men's Comment. For the practice of Zen, it is imperative that you pass through the barrier set up by the ancestral teachers. For subtle realization, it is of the utmost importance that you cut off the mind road. If you do not pass the barrier of the ancestors, if you do not cut off the mind road, then you are a ghost clinging to bushes and grasses. What is the barrier of the ancestral teachers? It is just this one word, Mu, the one barrier of our faith. We call it the gateless barrier of the Zen tradition. When you pass through this barrier, you will not only interview Chao Chu intimately, you will walk hand in hand with all the ancestral teachers and the successive generations of our lineage, the hair of your eyebrows entangled with theirs, seeing with the same eyes, hearing with the same ears. Won't that be fulfilling? Is there anyone who would not want to pass this barrier? So then, make your whole body a mass of doubt, and with your 360 bones and joints and your 84,000 hair follicles, concentrate on this one word, moo. Day and night, keep digging into it. Don't consider it to be nothingness. Don't think in terms of has and has not. It is like swallowing a red-hot iron ball. You try to vomit it out, but you can't. Gradually, you purify yourself, eliminating mistaken knowledge and attitudes you have held from the past. Inside and outside become one. You're like a mute person who has had a dream. You know it for yourself alone. Suddenly, Mu breaks open. The heavens are astonished. The earth is shaken. It is as though you have snatched the great sword of General Kuan. When you meet the Buddha, you kill the Buddha. When you meet the Bodhidharma, you kill Bodhidharma. At the very cliff edge of birth and death, you find the great freedom. In the six worlds and the four modes of birth, you enjoy a samadhi, a frolic, and play. How then should you work with it? Exhaust all your life energy on this one word, mu. If you do not falter, then it's done. A single spark lights your dharma candle. The writer of the article carries on. Anyway, I think the new 
might be a reference to Zen teachings or nothingness, since it sounds very similar. Also, nu in Japanese is simply one letter. That concludes Evil Head's explanation. Anyway, I'll give credit to this one for its extreme detail and spirituality, a uh, reference to life, but I don't see how, even though they're similar, mu could be nu. And nu in Japanese doesn't really have a symbolism to it that would apply to the notes of Balthazar, character in Chrono Trigger, whatsoever. So, it's going a little far afield, but thought it was really interesting, especially that thing about the eyebrows and the mute person who has had a dream. That sounds just like Ness. Ah, these are my people. Anyway, as much as anything that they said there, the way they went about it is just right up my earthen path. I'm not too familiar with Zen, obviously, but the mystery of Mu sounds to me like something that might connect with a book that I've read a few times, uh, The Tao Te Ching which I wanted to read a little bit from next. So this is uh, the beginning of Tao Te Ching. Tao, called Tao, is not Tao. Names can name no lasting name. Nameless, the origin of heaven and earth. Naming, the mother of 10,000 things. Empty of desire, perceive mystery. Filled with the de <laughs> sorry. Filled with desire, perceive manifestations. These have the same source, but different names. Call them both deep, Deep, and again deep, the gateway to all mystery. Recognize beauty and ugliness is born. Recognize good and evil is born. Is and isn't produce each other. Hard depends on easy. Long is tested by short. High is determined by low. Sound is harmonized by voice. After is followed by before. Therefore the sage is devoted to non-action. Moves without teaching creates 10,000 things without instruction, lives but does not own, acts but does not presume, accomplishes without taking credit. When no credit is taken, accomplishment endures. Don't glorify heroes, and people will not contend. Don't treasure rare objects, and no one will steal. Don't display what people desire, and their hearts will not be disturbed. Therefore, the sage rules by emptying hearts and filling bellies, by weakening ambitions and strengthening bones, leads people away from knowing and wanting, deters those who know too much from going too far, practices non-action, and the natural order is not disrupted. Tao is empty, its use never exhausted, bottomless, the origin of all things. It blunts sharp edges, unties knots, softens glare, becomes one with the dusty world. Deeply subsistent, I don't know whose child it is. It is older than the ancestor. Heaven and earth are not kind. The ten thousand things are straw dogs to them. Sages are not kind. People are straw dogs to them. Yet heaven and earth and all the space between are like a bellows, empty but inexhaustible, always producing more. Long-winded speech is exhausting, better to stay centered. The valley spirit never dies. It is called the mysterious female. The entrance to the mysterious female is called the root of heaven and earth. Endless flow of inexhaustible energy. Heaven is long, earth enduring. Long and enduring because they do not exist for themselves. Therefore the sage steps back, but is always in front, 
stays outside, but is always within. No self-interest, self is fulfilled. Best be like water, which benefits the ten thousand things and does not contend. It pools where humans disdain to dwell, close to the Tao. Live in a good place, keep your mind deep, treat others well, stand by your word, make fair rules, do the right thing, work when it's time. Only do not contend, and you will not go wrong. Hold and fill it, not as good as stopping in time. Measure it, pound it, it will not long survive. When gold and jade fill the hall, they cannot be guarded. Riches and pride bequeath error. Withdrawing when work is done, heaven's Tao. Can you balance your life force and embrace the one without separation? Can you control your breath gently like a baby? Can you clarify your dark vision without blemish? Can you love people and govern the country without knowledge? Can you open and close the gate of heaven without clinging to earth? Can you brighten the four directions without action? Give birth and cultivate. Give birth and do not possess. Act without dependence. Excel but do not rule. This is called dark day. Thirty spokes join one hub. The wheel's use comes from emptiness. Clay is fired to make a pot. The pot's use comes from emptiness. Windows and doors are cut to make a room. The room's use comes from emptiness. Therefore, having leads to profit. Not having leads to use. All right. As with the place of Mu, this sort of discussion and sharing of ideas manifests a way of recovering the time in Proust's phrase, or of distilling and dramatizing those Joycean epiphanies, taking the time that could have been lost while playing old video games, realizing that playing is never lost time, first, and second, that that realization can be meaningfully transmitted across time and space, even if in only some indirect or negative form, and it could help someone else recover time that might otherwise be lost, giving them something to listen to during a commute or while waiting for something to happen. What happens to Pooh upon reconnecting with the master at the palace and giving his story about eternity and the mission to combat the forces arrayed against Earth is that he gains three levels at a jump and realizes the power of teleportation beta, allowing movement in a tight circle, and in that case, even from inside the palace, which takes him to Ness and his friends on the beach. This power is one Ness will eventually learn too, but it now effectively opens up Saturn Valley with its free hotel room and doctor's office. Knitting time and space together and the far-flung peoples of the world all the more readily. In line with the old master's message, Poole embraces his task at once. And in doing so, he recognizes Ness's leadership, pledging his service to the young hero and he, a prince from the east, will obey this baseball player. He places his life in Ness's hands. It's a kind of fealty, but also, I think, friendship, which is, of course, to lay down one's life for his friends, as Pooh did already for his ancestors at the place of Mu. 
So, exploring Summers once more, you'll find a few of the Summersians say something new about Pooh's kung fu haircut, or about the ruby he bears. Will the samurai kid be giving me that ruby? Says the guard at the museum, and handing it over allows the party to pass through a door previously blocked at the museum. What could be beyond it? Next episode.